Hey, Christina. Hey, hey Martin. Uh, you know, I've been watching you uh, do these episodes, and I figure it doesn't look that hard. I could probably do it myself, you know? <laughs> I feel pretty confident. I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of work that goes into that, the preparation nah, of an episode. Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I got this. Oh, yeah. Why, why don't you give it a shot? Why don't you go ahead? Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to go over this thing that I just found. I don't really understand it, but it doesn't look too hard. I guess it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, <laughs> let's do it. Hey, all Welcome back to They Did What to What, a science podcast where we read old journals and... Um, um, I'm Martin and, um, that's Christina. <laughs> oh, oh man. This is way harder than I thought. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's probably going to be really easy in the end. You'll probably look like an expert. Well, you know, since, since, since I, I'm struggling a little bit, why don't you tell me, Christina, what do you know about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Oh boy, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I don't think I was ever taught the Dunning-Kruger effect in any psychological or neuroscientific training or classes or coursework or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But I am very familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect in that I've read little tidbits about it online here and there. Great. Yeah. And so consequently, you probably feel like you're an expert. (laughs) <laughs> I'm probably an expert on it. So the short and very crude uh, understanding of the Dunning-Kruger effect I have is that people who don't know anything think they know a lot about a topic, and people who know it a lot about a topic don't say they know a lot about a topic, or they say, oh, geez, oh, boy, I don't really know anything. Yeah, yeah, that's, that is roughly the size of it. And what, what the paper does So it begins with that as kind of a casual observation, that it seems like people who are what they call incompetent overestimate their own competence. (laughs) Uh, Incompetent is is a technical term in this paper. um, (laughs) It is is specifically used and operationalized. So um, (laughs) incompetent people overestimate their competence, their ability, and their ability both generally and specifically. And um, experts or people um, who have high performance, high ability, tend to underestimate so then, so 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 uh, Dunning and Kruger, or rather, more appropriately for this paper, Kruger and Dunning, uh, basically theorize, develop a model that explains why this is the case. And this is a thing that I didn't actually encounter as a student, and I was confused as to why I had never seen it. And part of it is that this comes out of a paper that was published in 1999. Oh, too recent. We got to stop. I can't read something that recent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a good thing I'm reading it then. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it has this flavor of being a classic psychological study, but it's only from 1999, which, since I am quite old, was after I was a psychology student. Um, I, I, well, not quite after, but, but it, was, um, it wasn't kind of canonized until mm. after I was out. 
So, so that, it, but it really does have that feeling of being really classic, like something that was probably yes. done in the fifties or something. And and a lot of the things they cite in the paper are from the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Uh, so, so it, again, it does have that kind of classic flavor, but it is, it's from That really sounds like a radio station. Um, this radio station <laughs> cites the papers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great oldies uh, psychology paper. Uh, the paper is by, so the paper is by Justin Kruger and David Dunning, and it's called Unskilled and Unaware of It. How difficulties <laughs> in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessment. Unskilled and unaware of it. I am so surprised that this hasn't become like a pop culture phrase, a TikTok phrase. People wearing t-shirts that right. say unskilled and unaware of it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this paper, one of the things that, that I, I noticed about it and I sort of enjoyed is that it does have a lot of sort of vernacular stuff going on in it. Here's my unfounded speculation. I even thought back then that it, I think it goes a long way toward making something a classic paper. Just the fact that it's fun to read or that there's some personality mm-hmm. behind it. I, I suggested this to a, a, an eminent uh, social psychologist uh, when I was a psychology student in the mid nineties. You know, I've noticed that a lot of these kind of big papers have a lot of personality to them. And and this professor said, Pshaw, it's all about the <laughs> it science. could not be um, less about the science. As someone who has written and read <laughs> thousands of papers, right? It is so much yeah. marketing. And I detest how much marketing it is. But it's, it is so much being able to communicate your idea to other people. And absolutely having a catchy title and writing in language that people find it very easy to read, will absolutely increase the reach of your science. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't have to sell me on it. This is why I'm now a communication scholar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we might have mentioned this last time, but I think it would be great to go over, to, to, to really look at how some of the, some of the articles we read are, are actually written at some point. Kind of look at them yeah. in, in, I don't know, rhetorical, but also generic terms. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what are the parts of an article? I think we mentioned that last time, but we, we should think about that. So put that on the, I don't know, whiteboard. On the to-do list. Yeah. We could do a like season roundup at the end of a season and yeah. talk about the vernacular language. Is yeah. that a good phrase? Did yeah. I use a correct phrase? The vernacular language of all of the different papers. Because certainly uh, the um, Little Albert study, it was written so straightforward, so clearly, there right. was hardly any jargon. Yeah. Um, it was, we did this and the child did this. We did this and the child did this. And anyone could read that paper yes. and understand it. Yeah. So so this one is is very different in flavor. Because it's the 1990s, it's 99, right? You could, you could They obviously could not got, have gotten away with basically anything that happened in the Little Albert study. God, you know, I it, hope it, so. Yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't abduct uh, an orphan to, to do their <laughs> research on. Are you telling me this paper has no orphan abduction in it? <laughs> it has the much more consensual but equally dubious uh, recruiting undergrads for, for class credit uh, <laughs> Uh, modality, which is, you know, I, I mean, and I'm being half joking, half serious here. You know, those early psychological studies were, they, they weren't studies of human psychology. They were studies of the psychology of orphans. I mean, really, mm-hmm. it was what a lot of them were, um, particularly the, the child psychology. But by the 90s, what we have is a study of first year psychology students 
Like mm-hmm. that, you know, <laughs> are these generalizable? Maybe, as long as the population you're interested in is students in intro to psychology. And, and this, <laughs> this is really that. Um, it, is, it has a lot of jargon, although most of it is defined, and it's got all the kind of classic, um, uh, you know, manipulations and counterbalances. And it, it, it seems very well designed, although there are some things I'm a bit dubious about that we'll definitely talk about. So, as a question, as an aside. Yes. Are you familiar with anyone who's written a study comparing findings that were originally reported in first year psychology students, undergrad psychology students, and then general populations and how generalizable the first studies were? I remember talking about this in a an upper division psychology course. You know, I think I mentioned before that I, I generally annoyed my professors by talking about this kind of thing, you know, because, because again, they were just trying to teach us how to do, how to do science. Right. And, and I wanted to do science studies and I didn't know that was a thing yet, but that was really what I was interested in is the, you know, what, what, what goes into the decisions that go into designing a study. And so mm-hmm. eventually there was an instructor who, 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 um, didn't just get grumpy at that question and said, Herf. yeah, Herf. and the instructor did say that there, you know, there had been a lot of, a lot of work done on that um, in the late '90s, so yeah, we I, we could we could maybe try to find a paper that actually does some of that. Oh, if it's um, from the late '90s, I'm not interested. Right. Well, I guess I would have to read it again. Yeah, you would have to. Read it. <laughs> not interested in anything that recent. <laughs> so, all right. So this 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 paper was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1999. Uh, and again, the, the first thing I'll point out is that uh, Justin Kruger is the first author, but is known as the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, maybe just because it was catchy, but more probably because uh, Dunning was Kruger's uh, PhD advisor. <laughs> Um, you don't get to graduate unless it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I mean, if you call it the Kruger-Dunning effect, you're thrown right out. You're going to master out of this program. Well, one of the things I heard, I can't corroborate this, but David Dunning has given a number of interviews where he says that they didn't name this mm. effect. Uh, it was named for them. It was kind of picked up in popular culture and 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 dubbed the Dunning Kruger effect. Again, even though this paper was uh, Kruger and Dunning, but yeah, th- this this I think was probably part of Kruger's uh, PhD project because they list Kruger as the corresponding author, but then say he is currently at some other university. I think you know Illinois yeah. or something, even though. Uh, they were both at Cornell when it was done. So I, 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 I assume this was research that he did right at the end. And, but in any event, the Dunning-Kruger effect is rooted in a paper by Kruger and Dunning. So the thesis statement in this, in this paper, I don't know if you all talk about having a thesis statement, but they have a thing We that- do have a paragraph that's right before the actual results of the paper. We write like this full background introduction and then there's typically a whole paragraph that's the thesis statement it's not just a thesis sentence because we do so much mm-hmm. nonsense <laughs> that you can't you can't summarize it in one sentence so we have a thesis introduction but not a thesis statement 
right. as per such. Yeah, and, and of course, they, they do have a full introduction that lays out, you know, the background and stuff. But they have a thing that's a sentence that starts with the words, we argue, uh, which as a humanities scholar, that's what I'm looking for in my students' papers. <laughs> have something that says, we argue, so I know what the heck you're talking about. And so, mm-hmm. so they, have, they have a, we argue that when people are incompetent in the strategies they adopt to achieve success and satisfaction, they suffer a dual burden. Not only do they reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence <laughs> robs them of the ability to realize it. Instead, they are left with the mistaken impression that they are doing just fine. Oh my God, this is not applicable to millennials in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> no millennial is left with the mistaken impression that they are doing just fine. This d- does not apply. This study is not generalizable. Throw this whole study out. That is. <laughs> there is no millennial that thinks they are doing fine. Uh, so, done. We're done. <laughs> I hadn't considered that. But one of the things. So, one thing about this study is that it's been cited. Thousands and thousands of times, literally mm-hmm. thousands. So one of the things that I, I saw was, you know, maybe I should be looking at like updates, you know, or, you know, how it has been uh, used, tested, supported, refuted. But there is so much that I mm-hmm. really decided that we can't do that. Um, no. <laughs> uh, but, but that is a really good, interesting, you know, uh, point that... <laughs> Yeah, we do have an entire generation or more of people who never feel like things are going well and do Mm -hmm. tend to undersell their own ability at every turn. Yeah, I would say millennials do reach erroneous conclusions and they do make unfortunate choices, but they're not left with the impression that they're doing a good job. So we have to come up with a new effect. We can call it the Martin Christina effect. Right. Where it's the opposite not the opposite, the yang to the yin, right? Uh, one thing that was suggested in psychology today was that we can think of the Dunning-Kruger effect as the opposite of imposter syndrome. Mm. I don't know. So that's a, one possibility is that rather than Dunning-Kruger, millennials are just, you know, buried under imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, whether it's the opposite, I'm not sure. Also, Yeah, because did- the thesis is two parts, right? The thesis says that one, you have to reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices. So you have to do bad, Yep. <laughs> but you have to think you're doing good. And the imposter right. syndrome, I don't think imposter syndrome needs you to do bad or good. I think imposter syndrome is just your presence in a space and you feel that you are not deserved to be there, right? So I don't think right. it could be the opposite because imposter syndrome is just one piece. Right. It doesn't require... Right. That you do a bad job or a good job. Yeah. They also have a summary of this, what we'll talk about at the end, that, that I think we might have an ability to, uh, by the end of this, we might be competent to critique. <laughs> Please never accuse me of being competent. I take that as a personal affront. I take that as an attack on my personhood. Um, I will not stand for such slander. Well, let's talk quickly about what we mean by incompetence. But before that, we, we want to talk about the other key term that is mentioned, which is metacognition. This is a term that drops out of the discourse about Dunning-Kruger. And really, David Dunning doesn't even talk about it in the later years. He's, he's done a lot of writing about the Dunning-Kruger effect and updated mm-hmm. some ideas about it, but doesn't talk a whole lot about metacognition, even though it is 
on some level, the centerpiece of this article. It is the engine by which what is, becomes known as the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, takes place. So the two key terms are metacognition and incompetence. So metacognition, they say, we argue that, that the skills that engender competence in a particular domain are, are often the very same skills necessary to evaluate competence in that domain one's own or anyone else's. Because of this, incompetent individuals lack what cognitive psychologists variously term metacognition, metamemory, metacomprehension, or self-monitoring skills. Metacognition is the ability to distinguish what one has answered correctly from what one has answered incorrectly, and Mm -hmm. it's the ability to recognize competence in others. Those two factors make up metacognition for them yes (laughs) okay so that's going to be important and it's going to you're going to see that throughout the throughout all of the studies there's four studies in this article you're going to see see that playing out so in this context metacognition is not thinking about how to think right metacognition is having the skills to understand other people's skills or your own skills yeah, yeah, they have operationalized that ability to think about your own thinking as the ability to distinguish your correct answers from your incorrect answers and your ability to recognize when someone else has answered correctly or incorrectly. So they use self-monitoring skills as a uh, replacement term, basically, or like an interchangeable term? Yes. Would you view self-monitoring skills as interchangeable with metacognition? <laughs> one, th- I, I wasn't going to get into this right away, but one of oh. the really sticky points about this paper is that metacognition is essential to their model, and I don't know if I understand their definition of it. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I feel like I understand, but also that could be the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. That is, yes, yes. Where I don't know that I actually understand how they're defining That's... metacognition. Because to me, I don't think meta-memory and self-monitoring skills are interchangeable. Right. I don't know that meta-comprehension and meta-memory are interchangeable, right. but they listed all of those in their... They do. Uh, statement yep. as uh, variously termed and then list all the terms. Yes. I don't know that to me Yeah. they are. Right. Yeah. But I also haven't read all the papers that they're citing, so it's possible right. that it is true. Right. No, that that's exactly again, that that's a thing that I was sort of worried about. And increasingly as as it goes on, that said if we are willing to take at face value that metacognition simply means the ability to distinguish what what one has answered correctly from what one has answered incorrectly and the ability to recognize um, correct and incorrect answers in others or competence in others, then... I think that depends on what the definition of the word is. is. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this before, but 90% of my jokes are based on presidential humor from 1990 to 2008, and I have no jokes outside of that. So thank you for laughing at one of the seven jokes that I have. But I felt it was very relevant at that point, right? Like, we're all just defining things. It is, it is relevant. And I mean, also, it's the kind of joke that they would make. I, I should go back and <laughs> dig up in the article. They make a bunch of sort of lame jokes throughout it that are about on that level. So... Um, Did you not put the lame jokes in? Oh. 
the second key term we have to define is incompetence. So they just use incompetence for the first couple of pages, and then they uh, define it in a footnote. (laughs) Probably a reviewer (laughs) made them define incompetent, and they didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) To their credit, Dropping it in a footnote really does add to the flow. So going back to this this notion, it's it's a it's a relatively inviting article to read. So I think maybe dropping in a footnote was the right answer. But the footnote says a few words are in order about what we mean by incompetent. First, throughout this article, we think of incompetence as a matter of degree, not one of absolutes. There's no categorical bright line that separates competent individuals from incompetent ones. Thus, when we speak of incompetent individuals, we mean people who are less competent than their peers. Second, we have focused our analysis on incompetence Individuals display in specific domains. We make no claim that they would be incompetent in any other domains, although many a colleague has pulled us aside to tell us tale of a person they know who is domain general incompetent. Those people may <laughs> exist, but they're not the focus of this research. I tell every person I know this story. So I am a neuropharmacologist. I'm a neuroscientist. I work on a floor full of neuroscientists. We have a printer and the printer is functional maybe 2% of the time. Yeah, that's maybe. right. Yeah, no, that's... Maybe. And we're all smart people. We all have PhDs. <laughs> maybe we're not all smart people. I don't know. We all have PhDs, and the PhDs mean nothing because we can't get a printer to work. We don't know anything about printers. So I'm very glad that they put this footnote in so that they know that I know, and I know that na- they know that knowledge <laughs> is domain-specific. <laughs> And it is not generalizable. <laughs> so this is this is an interesting point too. One thing that I might be an expert in is printer maintenance. <laughs> While I was a psychology student, I, I did I did technical support, and they basically hired me because no one wanted to deal with the printers because printers are the worst. And so they are in fact the worst. I had to become an expert in printers, and the thing I learned in, in the course of that expertise is that printers are always broken. printers are at a state of being broken and they occasionally rise to a state of working yeah so if you can't make it function that is the printer functioning properly (laughs) this is not a sign of your incompetence (laughs) this is a sign of the world working as it ought to okay (laughs) so so more specifically what they end up meaning by incompetent is just the participants who in any given task scored in the bottom quartile that's their operational definition of incompetent, is those who have scored in the bottom quartile. So every domain in the world has incompetent people. Yes. And the people who are incompetent in different domains are always different from other domains. They likely are, although again, as they say, their, their colleagues assure them that there are domain general incompetent people. And, <laughs> right. I thought you were going to start talking about handedness, that if this was from the 1920s, we would be testing for handedness. We, we probably would And there be. would be a 100% overlap between the bottom quartile and, and people who are left-handed. Yeah, incompetent is operationalized as the left-handed. The left-handed, yes. Yeah. No, they, 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 have, they have simply just defined it as whoever is in the bottom quartile. Um, and so they've got four studies, and in each of those four studies, we're going to be looking at incompetence, which is just going to be the bottom quartile. There's going to be a lot of quartile talk in this paper. 
I'm not wearing enough co- Coke bottle glasses to say quartile <laughs> to say today. Quartile. Mm-hmm. This, it really is going to be quartiles and percentiles all the way down. It's <laughs> it's it's very different than uh, Watson, who's just like, oh, uh, some stuff happened. Trust me. <laughs> so okay, one of the things I I always need my students to do is. At some point, give me what my MA advisor uh, referred to as the so what. Mm. It's just kind of the problem that they're trying to solve. They're, they say that the, um, the, the metacognitive skills of the incompetent explain in part the fact that people seem to be so imperfect in appraising themselves and their abilities. They believe, uh, they say, uh, that focusing on the metacognitive deficits of the unskilled may help explain the overall tendency toward inflated self-appraisals by uh, unskilled people. And uh, because people usually choose what they think are the most reasonable, optimal options, the failure to recognize that one has performed poorly will often lead one uh, to assume that they have performed well. Uh, As a result, they say, the incompetent will tend to grossly overestimate their skills and abilities. And David Dunning later talks about all the uh, situations in which this can be disastrous. Um, the, The one he points to is driving. People often think that they're very good at driving and they go through driver training and they learn just the smallest amount about how to drive on ice and then they go out and try to drive on ice and their overconfidence gets them in trouble. So this is this is sort of the real world problem that uh, Kruger and Dunning see as the importance of, of, of resolving why this happens. I don't know if this is a real world problem, but I saw a poll that it was some ridiculous percentage. It was like 40% of men think that they could beat Serena Williams in a tennis match. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I think that that would be a problem, certainly, if they attempted to beat Serena Williams in a tennis match. Luckily, I don't think Serena Williams would, you know, play these men and have them sprain their whole bodies. Receive like however fast she can hit a tennis ball, two hundred mile an hour tennis right. ball, to the face. It would be dangerous if she did participate in this, but luckily Serena Williams is not. Right? No, she would not feeding into this. So it is no longer a real world problem. It's a theoretical problem it, that we're. It, it, we can talk at the end actually about um, some of the limitations of the Dunning Kruger effect. One of them is athletics. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah, so, so so David Dunning talks about this later, and it's mentioned a little bit in the in the paper as well. Is this whole paper just a long con? Does Cornell have like a football rivalry <laughs> with another school, and this whole paper is like, oh, this other school suffers so much real world consequences because they think they can play football, but they can't. Suck it. We'll see you on Sunday, and that's like their advertisement for this football game. Is that true? I I will say that it is. Okay, nice. (laughs) (laughs) What a good paper. I love this paper. paper. One more thing I want to talk about before before we look at the studies is that they're not the first ones to notice this kind of phenomenon, but they are. They do see themselves as filling a very specific gap um, in the literature. This is part of what makes it really feel like a, a bunch of PhD work. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but there is a pretty clear, like, this is the gap we are filling with this research section. So they say that, uh, previous studies have showed that novices are worse at estimating their own skill level 
However, if being unskilled simply meant you were bad at evaluating your own skill level, you would expect probably a normal distribution of estimated skill level. Mm -hmm. But Kruger and Dunning suspect that it is systematic. Mm -hmm. Previous studies also hadn't established a mechanism for this inaccuracy. And so that's what uh, Kruger and Dunning are doing. They're using metacognition to, uh, as the mechanism. And finally, uh, previous studies did not necessarily link incompetent self-evaluators to the above average effect. And the above average effect is this phenomenon where if you ask a large group of people what their relative skill level is, rank yourself kind of one through five, mm-hmm. you will find that the mean is like four, which by definition cannot possibly be accurate, (laughs) right? There tends to be an above average uh, rating just kind of across domains, everything from uh, physical skills to intellectual skills to social skills. And so they're looking for an explanation for the above average effect. And they think it might be Mm -hmm. related to people's, to incompetent people not being accurate self-evaluators. They think Mm -hmm. they're bringing Mm -hmm. the bottom up. Finally, they're going to make some predictions. They're say, they say that in the four studies they do, they predicted that the participants in general would overestimate their ability and performance relative to objective criteria. But more to the point, quote, we predict that those who proved to be incompetent, those who scored in the bottom quartile, would be unaware that they had performed <laughs> poorly. <laughs> Okay, so, so again, we, we expect an above average effect to come into play because the people at the bottom are overestimating their ability and that even when they have a chance to look at their own performance, they won't know that they did badly at it. I so want these studies to be repeated in the year of our Lord 2023, but especially I want there to be the official evaluation that people submit at the site of their own skills versus how they talk about it on Twitter <laughs> later. And I bet there would be a massive gap between a self-evaluation that you submit in an official context to official people versus how you talk to the whole public, the whole world, about how you did on these evaluations. All right, so they made four, four big predictions. One was that incompetent individuals compared with their more competent peers will dramatically overestimate their ability and performance relative to objective criteria. Number two, incompetent individuals will suffer from uh, deficient metacognitive skills in that they'll be less able than their more competent peers to recognize competence when they see it, whether in themselves or others. They predicted, number three, that incompetent individuals will be less able than their more competent peers to gain insight into their true level of performance by means of social comparison information. And then finally, uh, the incompetent can gain insight about their shortcomings, but this comes paradoxically by making them more competent, thus providing them the metacognitive skills necessary to be able to realize that they have performed poorly. (laughs) So you have to gain competency in order to know that you used to be incompetent. That is part of their prediction, yes. Yep, and, and this is why metacognition is the engine for this whole thing, right? That, you, that metacognition is only available to competent people. By gaining competence, the reason that gaining competence will allow you to make proper self-assessments is that it will give you metacognition or me- metacognitive skills, 
Um, and then you will both be competent and recognize your former incompetence. So if we were going to um, try to study some of this stuff. I was just going to ask, how did they study this? Well, obviously, the thing that you would start with would be humor. That's obviously jokes. the sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> Jokes on jokes. They hired Rodney Dangerfield to come tell jokes. They, <laughs> I hope. I think they tried. <laughs> <laughs> So for study number one, what they had is they had participants rate the humor um, of a list of jokes, and then they compared those ratings to ratings by professional comedians. Professional comedians do not know what funny jokes are. This is just a study that is bad on its face. Professional comedians (laughs) have no idea what's funny, and they go to audiences and they say 400 jokes, and then audiences find five of the jokes funny, and then professional comedians travel all around. This study is bad. It was poorly designed. I would never fund it. I would never publish it. It's a bad study. Uh, so, so, so you you have you have immediately hit upon one of the problems with study number one. It's bad. It's a bad study. But I hope there are some really good laffy taffy jokes that we get to hear. I have two for you. Okay, I'm really excited about these. So, like I said, this was done with uh, with with undergrads who are getting extra credit for it. Uh, Sixty five of them. Sixty five Cornell undergraduates yes. are going to have the most like left of field humor. No. This is so bad. This is so bad. Oh, my God. So they they created a 30-item questionnaire made up of jokes that, quote, we <laughs> felt were of varying comedic value. No. So they were just... So the first thing is that the jokes were selected by Kruger and Dunning. <laughs> they were taken... So they're just selecting for people who have the same sense of humor as them. Right. So, so, so they took they took jokes from Woody Allen. No, or he, he published some books in, in, of, of jokes from his standup. Um, Al Franklin and yeah. a book of really silly pet jokes. <laughs> and the book is literally called "Another Book of Really Silly Pet Jokes." No, no, no. no. By Jeff Rovin. And so, no. so the students were asked to assess <laughs> to assess the quality of these jokes, ranging from one, not at all funny, to eleven, very funny. No. And they also they also contacted quote several professional comedians via electronic mail. <laughs> no, nope. They, no. They got they got uh, they got seven ratings from comedians. Uh, the reliability of those comedians' ratings was 0.75, so moderately reliable. Does that mean that the comedians had high accordance with each other? That if yes. a joke was funny to one yes. comedian, okay, yep. it would be funny to all of the comedians. Yes, there, there, there was there was one uh, whose assessments were eliminated because it was negatively correlated with the other seven. Oh, probably that was the funny one, <laughs> and they just tossed the funny comedian. They actually listed who the comedians were. <gasps> And they're they're like. Did they list which one got thrown out? They didn't list which one got thrown out. Okay. They, there were two of them who I I had heard of who, are, who have gone on to be like writers on TV. It's just Tina Fey. It, Tina Fey is Dunning Kruger. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like eight Tina's Fey. <laughs> okay, so would you like to hear a couple of the jokes? I would love nothing more in this whole entire world than to hear objectively funny. And unfunny jokes. Did you take one funny joke and one unfunny joke? They did, there was no appendix that gave me all 20 jokes. They, okay. just, they just listed two of them. So here's example number one. And, and you can actually participate in this one as a joke, too, if you'd like. I would love so to. So question. 
What is big as a man, but weighs nothing? Existence. (laughs) (laughs) See, immediately we've gotten to, as you pointed out, the problem here. That that's an awesome joke. It's better than the joke that was in the book and is probably technically an anti-joke, which is why it's great. The answer is his shadow. (laughs) So how funny would you say that joke is? One to eleven. I would say it's funny because it's so bad. It should, it circles around yeah. to be. It's like your dad wakes you up on Saturday morning and says, "I got a new joke in the newspaper. You want to hear my joke? I got a joke." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what's as big as a man but weighs nothing? His shadow. Hey, get up and mow the lawn. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. So, based on my skit that I just made up that involves a father. Waking his children up in the morning yeah. to make them go do lawn care. Yeah. 11 out of 11. That's, so funny. that's an 11? Okay. The yeah. professional comedians rated that one 1.3. Okay. Example number two. The second joke they, they, uh, they had was, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think he, a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. <laughs> and if he asks why God is crying, another <laughs> cute thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. So all comedians are jaded fathers, right? Who hate their children. We know that as a fact. So, so I know that the comedians rated this 10 out of 11. Do you recognize this joke? Um, I don't. Is it famous? In the late 90s, on Saturday Night Live, there was a feature called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. And now Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Do you remember this? Okay. I do not remember Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. It was, it was like fake inspirational sayings. Um, and this is one of them. Okay. And so there would be this kind of serene music and like a scene of a mountain and some clouds and it looked like an inspirational poster. If a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. Who played Jack Handy? His name was Jack Handy. Jack Handy played Jack Handy. Yeah, that's a great question because the citation they give for it, remember when I said that they had jokes from Woody Allen, Al Franklin, <laughs> and Jeff Rovin? The thing is, I think they thought Al Frank they thought Al Franken wrote that book. Because oh. they, they cite Al Franklin, who's not a person, but Al Franken <laughs> definitely is. And Al Franken... I was wondering, when you said Al Franklin, I was like, I don't care at all about Al Franken, so I'm just going to let his name be mispronounced, no. and that's fine. No, I, th- I think they thought it was Al Franken. They thought Al Franken okay. was Al Franklin. Okay. And so they listed the book as having been written by Al Franklin... <laughs> Called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy, but they also do we know? But they also misspelled we, Handy. <laughs> okay, uh, here's my theory that I just invented. Yes, Lauren Michaels is a very serious man and he hates everything. Yes. My guess is that Jack Handy's real name is Al Franklin, yes. and he showed up on the first day after being hired, and Lauren Michaels was like, "Here's your new name. I don't give a fuck. Go write more jokes." Yes. Right? That is uh, that is entirely possible. The other possibility is that this article is full of irresponsible <laughs> typos and copy editing errors. There are so many of them. A lot of them involve numbers. A lot of them involve their own data. 
So are they incompetent at writing <laughs> research? Articles? I think they overestimated their own competence. Are Kruger and Deming <laughs> it's, incompetent? The only reason I'm bringing up this weirdness with Al Franken, Franklin, Handy, Handy, is that there are mistakes throughout this thing. <laughs> And it's wild that it's so famous and was clearly not copy edited. <laughs> this does make me feel better, though, right? Because yeah. I could have an extra space after a period and it'll ruin my entire life. And they're out here publishing just, it doesn't matter what his name is. No one cares. Just write something down. Yep. Move on. I, I, I submitted my dissertation. Two months later, I needed to find a citation in my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh yeah, what was that book? I know I cited it. I went and found it and I had accidentally capitalized the first and second letter of the person's last name. Found it was Oof. the first thing I saw the first Oof. time I looked at my dissertation after I published it. Oof. And yeah. Yep. But you know what? I guess I don't care because these guys didn't even look up <laughs> Al Franklin. <laughs> Anyways, how funny do you think this joke was? <laughs> so I think that they thought it was ten out of eleven. Exactly. Yeah. I think that this joke 100% depends on the delivery. And if it was delivered well, I would think it would be a very hilarious joke. Yeah. So this study had the students uh, rate the jokes on the same scale. They then had to rate their own ability to recognize what's funny compared to other Cornell students on a zero to 99 scale. And then the researchers compared the participants' ratings to the professional rate. Can we just acknowledge out loud together that this is so dumb, that humor is not a thing? Like, humor is a personal preference, right? You have a preference for a type of joke. This is absolutely a problem. <laughs> this is so dumb. There's, okay, there's, continuing on. There's it's no dumb. doubt that there's a problem here. Okay. So they did find that the mean self-rating was 66th percentile. That is to say, the average rating of how good you are at recognizing humor compared to others came out as 66%. Obviously, if there was an accurate scale to be had and people were accurately rating themselves on it, the mean would have to be 50, just by definition, right? Because they are placing themselves, um, each student is placing themselves in comparison to all the others. That, again, also assumes that their sample is evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. So, um, Incompetent participants, that is to say the bottom quartile, gave a mean rating of their own ability at 58, when in their actual ability to identify the funny, that is to say their ability to rate things the same way that the professional comedians did was actually in the 12th percentile. So that's a 46th percentile difference. Yeah, they were way off. The uh, top quartile rated their own ability in the 75th percentile, where their actual ability was the 90th. So I know you're saying this data to me, but I've already rejected this study as being just so ridiculous that I'm like... Yes, Martin's saying numbers, but none of this matters because the study is bogus, bonkers, bananas. That is correct. Also, the rest of the studies address some of your concerns and have the same format. So understanding the form here is more important than than the meaning of any of the the implications. Okay. So they wanted to start off with like a catchy hook of like, oh, look at these wacky guys. They're out here ranking humor. I, I, maybe. That might be true. I, I, okay. I do struggle to understand the different domains they're looking at here. Um, <laughs> humor is a really weird one to start with. They might, in fact, they might not have been done in this order. They might have started with humor, 
because they knew it was the weakest one. I don't actually know, mm. but mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. You do want to make your reviewers very angry before they read the rest of your paper. That's a very good strategy that they have yeah. uh, taken yeah. here. No, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Better angry than sleepy. Um, <laughs> so, okay. The, um, the top quartile rated their own performance lower than it, than it was. The bottom quartile rated their own performance much higher. And the mean was far above what it should have been. Okay. So study number two, logical reasoning. So this study addressed some of the limitations of study one. So in study two, Kruger and Dunning addressed an intellectual ability rather than a social ability. Part of what that meant is that the criteria for evaluation were less ambiguous. That is to say, (laughs) it's not totally dependent on whether or not you happen to agree with the the seven professional comedians who happen to respond to their electronic mail. Yeah, right. Like, who are the comedians that use email? I don't even trust that seven comedians use email just as a statement across the board like they they listed them and i had heard of two of them uh they are (laughs) they are many of the others were impossible to find uh which actually makes them seem more legitimate as professional comedians from 1999 (laughs) like the fact that they disappeared off the face of the earth and like are Mm -hmm. unfindable so yeah they recognize that that was a shortcoming and so their second study addresses that by giving logical reasoning questions. Once again, it was a test. Uh, the other thing that's nice about a logical reasoning test is that it allows for absolute, uh, like raw score assessments rather than simply comparatives. You can estimate mm-hmm. also how many questions you think you got right. So this one used 45 undergrads from, the, from an intro psych course at Cornell, once again, for extra credit. They completed a 20-item test built from LSAT uh, test questions on logical reasoning. And so they this time they had to make three estimates. One was they had to compare their own logical reasoning ability in general against that of their classmates. They had to estimate how their score um, compared to that of the other people taking this test. So both their general ability and their specific ability on this test, and then estimating how many questions they got right. This uh, Yeah, this strikes more true. This rings more true. Even though it's 45 undergrads <laughs> from an intro to psych course at Cornell. Yep, yeah. Even though... Right, the first one I'm not even convinced was generalizable to undergrads at Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> this one, I think, might has a better chance of at least being generalizable to intro psych students at Cornell. Maybe even intro psych students at other universities Possibly. in the region. At, le- at yeah. least in the upper New York area. So once again, the mean, uh, the, the mean self-rating was 66%. The self-rating for the test, the, the mean was the 61st percentile. The estimated number of questions correct was 13.3. The actual number correct was, was 12.9. This mm-hmm. is not a significant difference. Uh, and in fact, there was no significant correlation between any estimate and the participant's actual score. Oh. However, if we break it out by quartiles, there are some significant effects or correlations. So the incompetence, once again, the bottom quartile, they estimated their ability at the 68th percentile. So that's actually above the overall mean. Mm-hmm. They estimated their, their performance on this particular test in the 62nd percentile, which was once again over the overall mean. But their actual ability was found to be in the 12th percentile. So once again, they way overestimated their ability. Mm-hmm. This time by 50 points. 
And in concrete terms, they estimated that they got 14.2 questions right, when in fact they got 9.6 questions right. Notably, their estimates for their own performance were higher than those of the second quartile. Oh, okay. So they were more confident in their, in their overall ability. They were more confident than the second quartile. Okay. The top quartile estimated their, their overall ability in the 76th percentile. They estimated their test. Um, yeah, this is the part where the numbers they gave were actually wrong. So it looks like they, they, <laughs> <laughs> they estimated their performance to be like 70, 80th percentile. Um, their actual ability was the 86th percentile. They, they estimated that they got 14 questions right. They actually got 16.9 questions right on average, that top quartile. So they underestimated their performance by some amount. Mm-hmm. So looking at the graph, it looks like you pulled the graph from the paper here. They have a line with perceived ability and then a line with the actual test score. And to me, just because I know it's a relatively low number of subjects, it looks like it doesn't matter what quartile you're in. Your perception of how you did is pretty constant, that most people are guessing they got about 70%, right? And then when you're breaking it out into the quartiles, the bottom quartile obviously is very, very low. The top quartile is a little bit above the estimation, but it almost looks like it doesn't matter which quartile of performance you're in. Everybody guesses that they got around 70% correct. Yeah. For all of these studies, all the estimates are between like 60 and 75%. No matter what court, everyone guesses their ability is somewhere in that range. And they don't really address that compression as as a factor. Right. Now, it gets addressed a little bit in study number four. So we will talk about that a little bit. I'm trying I'm looking back at the paper now. I think they did find that the difference between the 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 lowest and highest quartile was statistically significant but you're right i'm sure they did some statistics that say that but if you're showing me 42 undergraduates from cornell i am not gonna yeah it's that's fine it's really small so Mm -hmm. you're right you know what is important though is the difference between between their estimate and their actual score yeah exactly that difference is big yeah i think looking at that graph it just makes me think Every person in the world thinks they're ever so slightly above average. Yeah. Yep. But we know that if you do math and you distribute people yeah. into four quartiles, yeah. there will be this huge difference yeah. between perception yeah. and reality. Yep. I, I would I would make a similar assessment. So um, if we look at the graph, it turns out that the third quartile actually was pretty close. They, they sort of accurately... Mm -hmm. estimated their own performance but the mean overall mean was an overestimate once again that that above average effect incompetent participants overestimated by a lot the top performing participants underestimated uh by a bit and the use of absolute scores suggests that these overestimates are not solely a product of underestimating your colleagues Mm -hmm. right so because one possible explanation would have been that you're like, well, I'm not very good at this, but I think everyone else is actually just worse, <laughs> right? I think everyone sucks at logical reasoning. So the fact that the incompetence overestimated the number of absolute questions they got right mm-hmm. means that they didn't just think they were bad and everyone's worse. They actually thought they were better than they were. Mm-hmm. So that's study number two. 
Then number three is where they start to address some of these concerns. This is a relatively well put together study. No surprise. Again, it's hugely famous. And even though no one, clearly no one actually reads it because they don't notice all the <laughs> typos. And, and, well, even and beyond that, I don't think anyone reads it because people would have been saying, did you know Al Franklin is in the Dunning-Kruger study? <laughs> exactly. And people would be telling each other jokes from the Dunning-Kruger study. Absolutely <laughs> nobody has actually read this. I know that for a fact. <laughs> yes. However, it is, it, it is a relatively clever study or set of studies. Uh, so, so study number three has two phases. Phase one is called grammar. So this is our third domain. So we've done humor, logical reasoning, and grammar. Because why not? <laughs> Do you trust the people who wrote this paper to be able to properly assess a grammar study? I don't, but I don't have to because they built their, they built their exam off of uh, a 20-item test built from national teachers' examinations practice questions. Okay. So they outsource to experts. Uh, <laughs> um, this one was 84 Cornell undergrads getting extra credit, uh, and they made the same comparisons as the last study. So estimate your own, your own ability in general to identify grammatically correct English sentences. Estimate how your score on this particular test uh, compares to others and estimate how many questions you got right. Once again, the mean was above average, 71. Once again, uh, the perceived number of questions correct was a little bit higher than the actual number, but the, the overall means were either insignificant or barely significant. So once again, there's not a whole lot to be discovered from the overall means, but when we break it out by quartiles, some things happen. As you noted last time, all of the estimates are between like 60 and 70%. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what quartile you ended up scoring in. It looks like every single person who took this test thinks that they got between 60 and 70% correct. Right. They found that the differences between them are statistically significant, but they are so minimal that it barely matters. Yeah. What is important is that the, the uh, incompetence, the bottom quartile, estimated their performance as being in the 61st percentile. Their actual uh, performance was in the 10th percentile. Mm -hmm. They estimated getting 12.9 questions right. They actually got 9.2. Uh, for the top quartile, they estimated it being the 70th percentile. They were actually in the 89th. Um, they estimated getting 6.9 questions right, and they actually got 6.4 questions right. So they were accurate in their prediction of how many questions they got right. However, they underestimated how good they were in comparison to everyone else. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they accurately predicted how many questions they would get right, but they misunderstood where that rated them leads to the question of, are they accurately assessing the skill of others? Because they are accurately assessing their own skill. So phase two, which they titled, it takes one to know one. <laughs> I said that they were trying to be inviting with their writing and they kind of are. And they are the kinds of people who would find, you know, the joke about the shadow funny. <laughs> <laughs> Bugs me about it though is the inconsistency between the titles. The last title was just called Grammar, and this one's a whole phrase. I don't, I don't, <laughs> there needs to be parallelism is, is my problem. But in this one, in phase two, the top and bottom quartiles returned and were asked to grade a sample of the grammar tests. 
And so what they were trying to do here was establish a correlation between performance and metacognition. That is to say, you were going to get to see how others did and potentially mm-hmm. learn about your own performance compared to others. And this was designed uh, to test the possibility that the top quartile was engaging in what's called a, a false consensus uh, phenomenon. That is, the top quartile might have thought that since the test was easy for them, it was easy for everyone, and therefore they underestimated their own ranking in comparison to everyone else. Mm-hmm. They said, this was an easy test. I, got six, I think I got 16 questions right, and of course they did. And so they assume everyone else got 16 or more questions right. And so by seeing a distribution of other people's performances, they'd be able to accurately, more accurately maybe, place themselves within the continuum. The expectation then was that the top quartile would be able to revise their own rankings um, appropriately, but the bottom quartile wouldn't. Mm. Also, it was expected that the bottom quartile would just be bad at grading. <laughs> were they given the key to the they, test? No, like the answers? No, no, no. Okay. They, they were asked to grade other people's performances okay. uh, without a key. This ended up having about 35 uh, participants, about 20 from both the top and bottom quartiles. They received a packet of five tests that had the same mean and standard deviation as the whole sample, and they were told this. So they were told that they were seeing a range of, of, score, of, of performances, and they had to make the same three assessments then. So compared, you know, compare their own ability, compare their own test score, and compare the num- and, and then estimate how many they think they got right. So same procedure as the last one. And so the first thing they found was that the people who were in the bottom quartile just made a shitload of mistakes. They made may- way more grading mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, so out of 100 items, they made about 17 mistakes. That said, the top quartile made nine mistakes out of 100 items. So we do see this as an assessment of their capability in the task. Mm-hmm. The bottom quartile did not, however, revise their own assessments in any way mm-hmm. after having seen how other people did. Mm-hmm. The top quartile had a significant statistically at least, increase in their own rankings of themselves, but didn't show an increase in their estimated number of correct answers. And so again, they, they understood how much more correct they did on the test as compared to other people who also took the test. Exactly. Now, they were still underestimating themselves, but they did make more accurate assessments. So this supports prediction number two, that incompetent perform, uh, participants can't recognize competence in others or in themselves. That mm-hmm. is to say they don't have metacognition. And it also supports prediction number three, that incompetent participants can't gain insights about their own performance from social comparisons. And this is because they can't recognize the competence of others. Mm-hmm. This also supports the explanation that the top quartile was underestimating themselves due to false consensus effects. This is really interesting, and I want, I hope the last study, they repeat some version of this where they then give the incompetent people the actually correct answer. So it's not a social comparison to update their information about themselves, but it's an objective set of information to update. And this is why this is such a good study. Is that They did that? Did they do that? At every point, right? Yeah, at every point you're thinking, well, here's the problem with the study they did. And they say, yeah, so... We recognize the problem with this study, so we're going to correct it. <laughs> maybe that's not. Maybe that doesn't make it a good study. But it makes a very satisfying study to read. Mm-hmm. 
once again, I think this really contributes to it being popular is it really rewards you as a reader <laughs> because you think they should really do this. This is the next, this is the next obvious uh, manipulation and then they mm-hmm. do it. That's incredible. I don't know that I've ever read a paper where I'm like, Oh, I really want them to do this. I want them to do this. And then they do it. That has never happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's very satisfying to read for that reason. Let's talk about study number four. They give a a quick summary. They say studies number one one through three showed that incompetent participants were unaware of their incompetence and lacked metacognition. Study number four seeks to improve competence, then test for improved metacognition and improved self-assessment. So they are going to they're going to train people and see how that affects their metacognition and self-assessment. So they have 140 now. (laughs) Cornell undergrads in a single human development class getting extra credit. And they each have to take a 10 item logic test and do the same three estimates. General ability, success on this test, number of questions correct on this test. They then have an intervention where 70 participants complete a training packet on logical reasoning and 70. And I'm just going to read what they say here. The remaining 70 participants encountered an unrelated filler task that took about the same amount of time, 10 minutes, as did the training packet. <laughs> you Christina, know that those you 70 have... you know no that those 70 <laughs> participants just got a list of 20 jokes. And they just read 20 jokes for 10 minutes by, by Al Franklin. They read Al Franklin's biography for 10 minutes. And then they went back and did the logic test again. Is, is that what you think of when you, when you see encountered an unrelated filler task? Why would you write that? Why would a human write that? This is the 90s, right? This is when those Nickelodeon TV shows were really, really famous of like kids trying to get through obstacle courses where they have to do unrelated filler tasks. They they had to do a double dare challenge. Yeah, they had to do a double dare physical challenge. These 70 Cornell students were running through the hallway doing double dare physical challenges and then they went back to class. Okay, but why don't they say that? What is Because <laughs> they didn't want to have to pay Nickelodeon royalties from this paper, right? Nickelodeon I... would sue. It would be a whole thing. When they say encountered an unrelated filler task, that sounds like that sounds like a random encounter in an RPG. Mm-hmm. Like you have encountered an unrelated filler task. <laughs> then they have to roll a D twelve on the table and figure out what unrelated filler task you encounter. <laughs> oh no, it's rock baboons. <laughs> You have to fight 1d6 rock baboons. Oh my god. So, <laughs> how how many rock baboons did they line up for these 70 students? Like was it one rock baboon that each student encountered individually? Well, I mean, I, again, how long does how long does it take to encounter a rock baboon? My they guess only, would be about 10, 10 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Like, well, so I think it go. takes 10 minutes. And in classic D&D, uh, a turn is 10 minutes. A turn is 10 rounds and a round is 1 minute. So yeah, a 10 round encounter. That's my assessment here. My eyes just fully glazed over. <laughs> that was the goal. <laughs> As you did time conversions for D&D. I have I sure never did. played D&D. Uh, I, can't, I can't be here right now. I can't listen to this. I'm so sorry. Uh, all right. So <laughs> after, after uh, doing the training packet or encountering rock baboons, all the participants <laughs> then took their own tests and redid all of their estimates. Okay. 
Oh, they looked at their own test. So they didn't take the test twice. No. They just looked at the test. Yeah, they looked at their own test and then redid their estimates. Okay. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Like I said, this this is... You're trying to make me like this study, and I am resistant to change. I'm very entrenched, so I'm reluctantly agreeing <laughs> that maybe this study is a little bit... A little bit cool. I, I'm not going to say that it's good. I'm going to say that it's cool. I'm going to say that it's satisfying. It's satisfying and it doesn't harm orphans it, there, that we know of. N- not that we know of. Uh, some of these yeah. Cornell undergrads might have been orphans, uh, but they are getting extra credit. So you know, They're getting extra credit. They're getting maybe $5. Or, or $5. <laughs> and or $5. or $5. Yeah. So they're getting something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Better than little Albert who just got yeah. terror. $1. <laughs> oh, that's no. That's right. His mom got one dollar. Oh my god! Yeah, a Sacagawea coin tossed at her face in order to enroll little Albert in the city. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. that was so grisly. So these Cornell students are five times better off <laughs> than, little than little Albert's Albert. mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So should, should we look at one of these logic questions? I would love to look at a logic question. Okay. So each logic question was comprised of, of, of four cards and a rule about those cards. All right. And so after looking at the cards and the rule, the students had to say which card to flip over in order to test the rule, card or cards. So for example, this is the example they give. If the card has a vowel on one side, then it must have an odd number on the other side. And the four cards show A, 7, B, and 4. And so the question is, which card or cards would you flip over in order to test this rule? That if a card has a vowel on one side, it must have an odd number on the other. So of the four cards here, only one has a vowel. So I would flip over A to test the rule that if there is a vowel on one side, it must have an odd number on the other side. There are odd numbered cards, but it doesn't say that the reverse must be true, right? Right. Yeah. So if the A, yeah. So flipping the A would be necessary because you'd have Mm -hmm. to figure out if it had an odd number on the other side. Flipping over the seven wouldn't do anything because just because it has an odd number doesn't mean it has to have a vowel. The B is irrelevant because it's not a vowel. However, if you flip the four over and, and discover that it has an O on it, that would also be a problem. So It would be a problem, but only if a vowel was on the other side. Right. So in order to test this rule, you would need to flip over both A and 4. Oh, I only re- heard you say card. I didn't see... Yeah, card or, or I cards. didn't hear you say card or cards. Yeah. Yeah, then you would have to flip the 4. Yep. So they did 10 of those. As usual, the, uh, the, the, the mean um, estimates for the, for, for the entire group was in the 60s. The, the mean estimate for number of correct was 6.6. The actual was five was 4.9. So they were pretty close. But once again, where you get interesting results is by looking at the uh, top and bottom quartiles. So the incompetents thought that they were actually average on this. They estimated their own performance at about 50%. Their actual ability was in the 13th percentile. They estimated that they got 5.5 questions right. They actually got point. 0.3 questions right. <laughs> so they got between zero and one questions right. They did not do well. Uh, mm-hmm. The top quartile estimated 
about 80th percentile. Their actual ability was measured in the 90th. And uh, they estimated getting 8.5 questions, right? The top quartile all got 10 out of 10. Oh, nice. So we see, we see the same thing we've seen all along, right? That the, 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 the bottom quartile is overestimating their ability, having probably an undue effect on that upward drift, that uh, above average effect overall. Yeah, they think they did better than they, they did. The top mm-hmm. performers all thought they did worse than they actually did. Okay, so they then go through the training where they either go get this kind of 10-minute packet uh, that teaches them how to do logic questions or they they encounter a rock baboon. (laughs) And after this, the incompetent participants, Kruger and Dunning say, became more calibrated in every way. (laughs) They estimated their own ability to be uh, in the 44th percentile down from the 55th. Again, not accurate, but closer. They they estimated their performance on this test went down from 51st to 32nd percentile. This is the first Mm -hmm. time we see anything even close to that low um, Mm -hmm. uh, in any of these studies. And their estimated question, the number of questions they got right went down from 5.3 to 1. They estimated they got (laughs) 1 right. And that is very close to correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So once again, they, they, they are getting closer to understanding their own, uh, their own ability. They still are misunderstanding how well other people did in comparison. So just to be very clear, this is only for people who received training? This is for the people the who, who received the, the training. The, the, those who encountered a rock baboon showed no significant difference in ranking estimates. It actually had a significant <laughs> increase in their estimate of their raw score. Do we know that the rock baboon wasn't like hyping them up? Like, come on, man, you really got this. You did such a yeah, good job. Yeah, no, that's very possible. That, that could be why we saw the increase. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, th- however, what's important to note is that the rock baboon did not give them any training in logic puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the top quartile um, uh, uh, participants, uh, their estimated ability went up from 73 to 81. Uh, their post-training. Post-training, their estimated performance on the test went from 73 to 87, and their estimated number of questions correct went up from 8.5 to 9.9, which is, once again, almost accurate. So so once again, everyone is getting pretty close to understanding which questions they actually got right after getting some training. And and in fact, the top quartile participants got pretty close to accurately assessing their, their ranking amongst others. Uh, And again, the no training group showed no significant differences. So we see here that training allows for metacognition to happen and also seems to eliminate that um, false consensus effect for the top performers. So that training interventions uh, seems pretty helpful in terms of supporting the model they're presenting here. Now, one of the other things that they wanted to point out that, that they have not necessarily established that metacognition is the method through which this happens. Yeah. And so they reassure us that it is. <laughs> you want to know how? By saying it out loud. They, they sure do say it. <laughs> they, 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 they say that they did some regressions and they sure show the beta scores for those regressions. <laughs> Mom, go away. I'm doing regressions. God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They 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 regression coefficiented the the heck out of these. Um, <laughs> they were able to show that 
metacognitive skill mediated the link between incompetence and self-inflated assessment because low levels of objective performance were associated with inflated self-assessment. Low levels of objective performance were associated with deficits in metacognitive skill, which, okay, and deficits in metacognitive skill were associated with inflated self-assessments, even after controlling for objective performance. The fact that metacognitive skill is defined in terms of those other two factors either makes this tautological or nonsense, and I'm not sure which. I think they're trying to do the whole dependent-independent variable thing, they are. right? Where the... Yeah, the independent variable is how competent you are, right? And the dependent variable is your performance on the test. Right. And they're trying to, yeah, and they're trying to figure out how metacognitive skill mediates that. But metacognitive skill is defined in terms of the both the independent and independent variable, which means that it is by definition mediating. I think they're saying that metacognition is the relationship. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Ah. They're they're te- they're terming right. metacognition to be the relationship between the independent and the dependent variables. Right. The performance on the test and the competency. Okay. Okay. So they're saying okay. that it's metacognition by just saying that it's metacognition, and they're just terming metacognition to be this relationship. And right. they're like, it's true because it's true. Right. Because okay. that's what we're calling. Okay. It. So so right. It's tautological. Not yeah. nonsense. I knew it was one. I knew it was one of the two. It turns out. <laughs> to be was, fair, tautology, yeah, tautology <laughs> can be nonsense. Is most often nonsense. <laughs> but yeah. in this case, they're saying this is true because that's how we have defined it to be true. Yeah, because we have a relationship between two variables. That does make sense to me now. This might also be why David Dunning never talks about metacognition after this, <laughs> because yeah, while it does in their model, explain the variance, it, in vernacular language, explains literally nothing. (laughs) So, cool. Okay. Which, I suppose, once again, does make it seem like a PhD project. That is... (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of shitting on PhD projects today. Not shitting on, just noting some trends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, part of it is that you're required to come up with some sort of theoretical intervention when you might not be ready to do that. A lot of people... I think you're speaking to the social sciences specifically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a thing that is requested. Make some sort of theoretical intervention. Because again, otherwise, yeah, yeah, what, what, what have you done? Uh, I, I imagine that in the in STEM, ran, it's much more objective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I ran this. These study are my and got data these points. Results. These are my bar graphs. These right. are my regression yeah. analyses. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever tell me how long your dissertation was? Mine is 150 pages. Okay. Uh, I feel very defensive about that because it's on the shorter side. Yeah. But I did so much work during my PhD that I only put a subset of it actually in my dissertation. Yeah. And the other work is just published in papers. It's not in my uh, dissertation. Okay. I I wasn't sure if it was the case that STEM dissertations were like 32 pages long or something. They can vary wildly. Some people in their dissertations only put their published papers. So that would be like a 30 page dissertation. And then I think one of my boss's dissertations is like 300 pages long. It can just be whatever you want it to be. As long as you meet your committee requirements. Interesting. How long is your dissertation? It was like 260 pages. 
Oh my God, you're just saying that because I said 151st. I, I know I enough about look. business negotiations I that I shouldn't do, do, have said. Do you want me to look? My number do you want me to first. look? No, I know it's longer. I'm acting mean because I'm very defensive right now. Well, so so mine mine was in fact longer than anyone wanted to read. Um, <laughs> the, the, it was not supposed to be that long. Mine was supposed to be 150 pages, but I I I did it wrong. Um, so yeah. My, the question was purely to, I just didn't know. I, I, it seemed entirely possible because I know that a lot of STEM papers are, you know, a page and STEM a half long. STEM papers, yeah, are the most condensed. Like you can have 15 years of work in five pages. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, so I don't know. Just curious. Okay. Yep, enough of the nerd stuff. Let's get back to the science. So, um, when they get to their general discussion, they start off by talking about neuroscience. <laughs> now, this would be an interesting time if there was a word for discussing something that you don't have skill in, <laughs> but you make bold claims about. If there, if there was a word for that phenomenon, this would be a time to I deploy it. I wonder what it would be. Yeah. So maybe you you could be our expert. You could be like like Al Franklin, and be our professional <laughs> evaluator to tell us if they know what they're talking about here. The problem is, as I identified at the very beginning, I'm a millennial and I will claim expertise in nothing. Sure. So have I studied neuroscience for 15 years? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Do I know anything? Abs- 100% Not at no. All. Okay, but nobody knows anything. Th- that said, if I sent this to you in an electronic mail, would you would you respond? <laughs> Cuz that's all we need for an expert, really. I would respond okay, yes, right. from an electronic so, mail. So 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 then you're an expert. Okay. So they say in the neurosciences, practitioners and researchers occasionally come across the curious malady of Anosognosia. Did I say that right? Anosognosia? Anosognosia. In essence, anosognosia not only causes paralysis, but also the inability to realize that one is paralyzed. In this article, we propose a psychological analog to anosognosia. We argue that incompetence, like anosognosia, not only causes poor performance, but also the inability to recognize one performance is poor. Is that a good analogy? Uh, yes and no. Okay. So they say paralysis, and I don't think paralysis agnosognosia is very common, but uh, I've heard it more in terms of people who have like personality disorders not realizing that they have a personality disorder or not understanding or acknowledging that they have a personality disorder. Okay. Um, so that would be less of a quote-unquote physical right malady versus a emotional personality malady mm-hmm. so maybe question mark i feel like they're making an analogy to neuroscience just so they can say neuroscience not because they actually believe that there's this direct <laughs> this was my guess too because it's it's yeah. 1999 if you yeah. can say neuroscience in 1999 that's just just add a zero to your to your grant <laughs> Yeah, no, fully. Oh my God. One of my, my favorite thing is re- reading very early neuroscience articles because they're proposing all of these things that people just absolutely take for granted and they don't cite anymore. Oh, yeah, okay. So one of my advisor's papers starts with the proposal 
that glutamate could be a neurotransmitter. <laughs> and if you know anything about neuroscience, glutamate is one of yeah, the main yeah, yes, neurotransmitters yes, in yes. the brain. And he like very tentatively like glutamate, a putative neurotransmitter. And we now know, yes, it's everywhere. It's a neurotransmitter. It's yes, of course. Yes. yes, that's what it does. So I love reading stuff like that. So that just makes me think of... Uh, uh, they're like neuroscience. Well, <laughs> there could be something in the brain. It could be in the brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so one of the things this made me think of too is that I was a I was a hearing science uh, researcher in the psychology department, and one of the reasons that I stopped was because there were there were just fewer people to study with. So I was thinking about graduate school, and there was there were fewer people to study with because nobody did behavioral hearing science, or fewer and fewer people mm. did. It was all going neuroscience, mm-hmm. and um, and for whatever reason, neuroscience was focused on vision rather than hearing. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably that that there might be no reason for that. It might that might just be coincidence? But yeah, so 1999 would have been the time where like if you can put neuroscience in your paper. <laughs> Anyway, well, it, it could be in the brain. Has anyone thought yeah, about the brain? Did anyone check the brain? Is it in the brain? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I, I was I was not convinced that they were making a responsible analogy here, but <laughs> maybe they checked with a buddy. I think it's fine because it's a very throwaway like. Hey, it might be like this. They're not yeah. saying we have yes. proven yeah. that it it's is true. This. this is how they open their conclusion or their, their discussion, their general discussion. Is yeah. how it opens with this. Whether or not it's it's the best analogy to make, it is inviting. Uh, they're they're mm-hmm. saying, hey, look, what if we think about it this way? Uh, isn't this interesting? And the readers of this journal are have uh, neuroscience on the brain, we could say. Uh, oh, yeah, don't yeah, do uh, that. Uh, 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 see what I did there? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> that joke was a three out nice. of 11. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll ask Al Franklin if he, if he agrees with your assessment. Um, so that's how it opens. Okay. But they go on to say that overall bottom quartile participants were less successful than top quartile participants in metacognitive tasks of determining what one has answered correctly versus incorrectly, and in distinguishing superior from inferior performances on the part of one's peers. They say, more conclusively, study four showed that improving participants' metacognitive skills also improved the accuracy of their self-assessments. So incompetent people have low metacognition and thus make in accurate assessments, but you can improve metacognition and self-assessment accuracy in incompetent people by making them competent. Mm-hmm. So if this is true, the question that they're left with is why aren't incompetent people getting better at metacognition? Because they should just constantly be getting instructive feedback from the world. Once again, I could beat Serena Williams. <laughs> You play Serena <laughs> no, Williams no. and you have now gotten the sort of instructive feedback that you might get from a, you know, a 10 minute read through a logic problem packet. Like this is instructive feedback that no, no, I am not 
good at playing tennis compared to Serena Williams. And so they say that there's many reasons why this doesn't just kind of happen naturally, why incompetent people... I love that they're neuroscientists, but also now anthropologists. This is partially the weakest part of the article, (laughs) but some of it is interesting. So first they say, because people are too polite. You're told from the time you're a, a small child, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And that keeps people from being corrected. That is some... These are New Yorkers, right? We have to <laughs> they remember. are New Yorkers. These are two New I, Yorkers, I, two New York men writing an article. I would... I would say. Hey, people are too polite out here. <laughs> hey. I'm going to suggest that while a bunch of that stuff was clearly Kruger because it had a strong dissertation vibe, this is Dunning stuff because this has some strong old man vibes. The kids today are there. Uh, people are too polite. Uh, Everyone gets participation, participation trophies in the logic, the logic tests that we give them in exactly. class. Exactly. That's so yeah. funny though, because we know that sociologists and anthropologists would come back and talk about how social animals are, and that we don't constantly need to be ranking each other against each other. We need to be working together to build community and life and support and feedback and all that stuff. And they're coming in here like bull in a china shop like no we must be telling everybody how much they suck all the time exactly yeah uh <laughs> yep so that's that that is not compelling hold on a second i have a dog <laughs> knocking at the door okay i think he has been called away <laughs> okay um the second they said many tasks just don't provide feedback and I, and that that one seems correct right a lot of times you don't know how you did when you tried to do a task um as long as it doesn't mm-hmm. end in disaster i don't know that i'm a good or bad driver i made it from a to b but like as long as nothing intense happens there's just you're not getting any feedback so you mm-hmm. can just continue to assume that you're a good driver the second is that failure can be attributed to a number of different factors. And this go and th- so this goes to what you said way back at the beginning with playing Serena Williams. You you could attribute this to your low ability, right? To the fact that you are not good at tennis. It's certainly not <laughs> good compared to Serena Williams. But you could also just say, Oh, I would have beat her if I, you know if my tennis shoes weren't so slippery. Right. Yes. You could attribute it just to kind of lack of execution. Like I had the talent to beat her. I just didn't play well that day or to bad luck. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. My shoes were untied. Uh, so there's a number of different things that you can assign failure to, not just low ability. Whereas they argue success almost universally has to be the conjunction of all of those things coming together. Succeeding means mm-hmm. that you had the ability, you executed on the ability, and you probably had some measure of good fortune. So they don't uh, ascribe it to like meritocracy. They say there is luck <laughs> they, involved. They in- do. They 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 are not they are not saying successful people are just the best. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering if you're going to end with billionaires deserve to be billionaires because they're so good at they, everything they, all they the time. They do not say that. They're visionaries and they deserve a billion dollars. They, they, they in fact, do not say that. Um, That's yeah, good. isn't it nice that they <laughs> For what it's worth, I, I didn't Watson even say that, though. Like, that's pretty behaviorist, you know? That, mm-hmm. yeah, people aren't just born good. You have to make them good or make them bad by <laughs> torturing them with rabbits when they're babies. Oh, yep. Yeah. That was his whole thing is I could take any person 
and train them to be the best person ever or the worst person yeah. ever. Yeah. So, so yeah, right. They, so, so they think success with success, obviously all these things came together, but with failure, you could attribute it to anything. So that, so in that way you mm-hmm. could protect your faith that you are as good a tennis player as Serena Williams, even though you got uh, <laughs> literally murdered by her <laughs> when you played her. Now, the last thing they say is that incompetent people don't do social comparison very well. This is once again, I think, basically tautological, or not, not tautological, but relies on their definition of metacognition, which was that you don't do social comparison well. And since incompetent people are low in metacognition, therefore they must be low in social comparison. And they demonstrated that they're low in social comparison, which is part of how they proved that they're low in metacognition. (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) Yes, space, question mark. (laughs) Right. Space. uh? Right. So, so, So these were their kind of general conclusions, that metacognition was important to linking self-evaluation to ability and that if you train people to be higher performing, more competent, they will increase in those other factors as well. And that the reason that most people don't just naturally do that is that the world is complicated. Mm-hmm. This study, as I said, has been taken up really, really broadly. Everywhere. Oh yeah, my it's goodness. so ubiquitous. Absolutely that, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, as we said in the beginning, I had no idea it was from 1999. It, it, it seems mm-hmm. so much older. But again, the reason I didn't hear about this when I was in school is because it hadn't happened yet. I am, you know, coming to terms with the fact that I am, I guess, quite old at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but just in the time between being a psychology student and being like an adult here, the, yeah, it has, it, it's just everywhere. One of the things to note is the way it's taken up is a little bit different than the actual findings. You're kidding me. <laughs> well, and even even how you described it at the beginning was missing a little bit of the nuance that they have in it. And I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Nuance. We can we can talk first of all. I look up Dunning-Kruger effect and the first Google hit is to Decision Lab, a company that uses social science to inform like corporate bullshit. <laughs> Which, you know, it, that, that's a big thing that's, you know, but this is how they describe it. And so you can see part, partially how the Dunning-Kruger effect then gets mobilized in various circumstances. So they, they you know, what it, what it is, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a phenomenon by which the least competent in a certain subject area overestimate their skills the most. It also causes the most competent in a subject area to think less of their own talents. They say causes. Yeah, Uh, why it happens. The phenomenon occurs because those who lack knowledge and skill at something lack the insight they need to know that they could do better. Not knowing much about something causes them to miss their own mistakes and lose the opportunity to improve. Not inaccurate, but Mm -hmm. really missing a lot of the important nuance of the studies themselves. They say, moreover, for those at the top, the effect occurs because something comes so easy for them that they don't realize it is challenging to others and therefore downplay the extent to which they stand out. So none of this is patently false, but you can see how it's right here been mobilized to talk about how basically to, to be something more like what you were saying. 
the people at the top should recognize that they're great and they should, you know, take advantage of it and not let the incompetence pull them down. And I think this is a common uptake of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think it's often used to... It's used as a weapon towards other people, is how I see it, it used. Yeah. That saying, the Dunning-Kruger effect makes anyone who disagrees with me, they're incompetent, they're overestimating their skills, but I, the person who has very good skills, know that I am not a victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I see it that way the most often. And I especially see it in political discourse of, oh, that person's saying this because of the Dunning-Kruger effect. They think they know everything. And it doesn't even matter the original perspective. It's if someone is disagreeing with you, obviously they have no knowledge and no skills and they're overestimating their skills. And I, the person with all the skills, know that they don't know what they're talking about. That's the way I see it applied publicly most exactly. often. Exactly. And so one of the things that that has been really good about about uh, David Dunning continuing to, to talk about it is that he obviously saw that happening. And one of the things he really emphasizes is that the Dunning-Kruger effect, because it is domain-specific, means that just because you're competent in one thing doesn't mean that you're competent in all things, and in fact will mm-hmm. encourage you to overestimate your competence in the things you're incompetent in. And so the, mm-hmm. so if you are a person deploying Dunning-Kruger effect uh, as a rhetorical device in the way you were describing, it is equally likely that you have mis- <laughs> <laughs> you know, misunderstood, misestimated your own expertise here. You're just dismissing the other person as incompetent because you do not have the the requisite skill in that subject area. Yeah, exactly. I see it as along the same lines as the term gaslighting. Yes. Where a lot of times now, if someone disagrees with someone yeah. else, it's termed to be yes. gaslighting. You are gaslighting me. You are lying to me. You are trying to make me believe something that's yeah. not true. And I would view gaslighting as absolutely an interchangeable phenomenon with Dunning-Kruger in the sense of it's being used as, uh, what's it called, like therapy language that's yes. been taken yes. up. Like social social psychology language that has been taken up into public discourse in order to weaponize conversation against people that you disagree with and that you don't yeah. like. Yeah, no, I think I think that's entirely correct. And so one of the things that David Dunning uh, talks about is basically that no one is immune from this effect. And I, I listened to one interview where someone asked him, like, you know, are you subject to this? And he said, I certainly am, but. I don't know it mm-hmm. and because that's part of it. You know, <laughs> you are probably always running afoul of this sort of uh, phenomenon. And according to the model, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't mm-hmm. know until later, until after you have become competent and gained the ability to assess yourself accurately until you had the metacognitive capability. So one of the things that, that he, he, he says, and I really appreciate this, is that Really, what you need to do is recognize that you are at best an expert in one or two areas. Mm-hmm. And other than that, you need to ask other people. Yeah, you need- I am a really strong uh, proponent of that. And especially that's one of the reasons why I hate intelligence testing so much and hate people who report their IQ as being a number of any significance <laughs> right, whatsoever. Exactly. Like just because you have competency in taking an IQ test does not mean that you have competency in other areas of life. And I think that humans as a species and as a a unit working together would be able to function much better if we all recognized that we have areas of competence, we have areas of Mm -hmm. incompetence, and you don't have to be 
an expert in every single area. Nobody expects that of you. Nobody wants that of you. We all have different areas of expertise that we can use to, you know, really make the world go. (laughs) Just really come together. (laughs) And just, you know, really... Do good in the yeah, world. Yeah, <laughs> So you, you say that a little bit... Uh, Facetiously at the but, end, but, yeah. I, I'm too uh, cold-hearted right. to no, genuinely we, think that that could be accomplished. We, we, will, we will not... Um, I'm going to edit this so it sounds like you really believe that. <laughs> um, but, but Dunning actually makes a similar point. So most recently, the way he's talked about this about this phenomenon. He sees it related to what's happened in the last couple of years where people, if they disagree with you, will say, do your own research. Yeah, and so yep. he sees that as related because it once again presumes that the reason people disagree with you is because you are an expert and they are incompetent. And that, mm-hmm. it, and, and the reason that people think that they have become experts is because they learned a little bit, you know, yeah. as he said, and I think he's right, uh, doing research, quote unquote, is is easy. You can look up whatever you want. The question is, when are you done? That's the hard part. That's mm-hmm. the part that's impossible to know. That's why, for example, I decided that I wasn't going to read any other articles that cite this because <laughs> how would I know when I was done? There's 3,000 of them. I am not expert mm-hmm. enough to know when I have covered all of the relevant literature on the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I decided I was going to stick to just this text. And that's also the point of, you know, this show. But, you know, recently, the phenomena that, that, that he really wants to investigate relative to the Dunning-Kruger effect is exactly this. People thinking that they, that they have become experts because they, quote unquote, did their own research. They, they mm-hmm. read three websites, but they, don't ha- but they are still incompetent to the point where they, they cannot accurately evaluate their own level of competence, much less the competence of the sources that they looked at. Mm-hmm. This leads to the necessity of relying, to some extent, on you know, domain-specific expertise. Yeah, I agree. I agree across the board. I don't have anything to add because I'm just like, yep, that's exactly yeah. correct. So reading through a lot of this, so at the beginning, like you, I was really skeptical um, <laughs> that humor studies... Bonkers bananas. Is, Absolutely bonkers But bananas. the studies get progressively better and increasingly answer the questions that you have. And it gets to the end and some of the some of the takeaway at the end is they're, they're, they're dipping into things that they clearly don't know. But the fact that, that Dunning has continued to think about this and apply it in ways that do make sense, I think is encouraging. And it, 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 it cool, makes me yeah. like this a little bit more. So, mm-hmm. it, so th- this, I think, was a pleasant, um, pleasant departure from some of the early ones. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a one million percent legitimate pop culture reference of the day there are just a million of them they're, mm-hmm. they're constant but because we are talking about psychology i figured that i would pull this example that comes from the world's preeminent psychologist one dr jordan b peterson <coughs> <laughs> Whom, whom we all recognize as the Oof. world's preeminent psychologist, Oof. right? Oh, my God. That, that there is, oh that there is no... But this is um, a definitely legitimate pop culture reference of the day. Um, is this where we pause for the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you heard the theme song, by the way? I do not suffer. I know for a fact that nobody likes me, that I say bad things, that I'm very annoying, all of these things, right? So I would be crippled and unable to record a single additional moment of my voice into a microphone if I heard the totally legitimate pop culture reference of the day song. All right. I can't do it. Make sure you never hear it. Okay. Cool. Okay, in any event, so there is a parody newspaper called the Dunning-Kruger Times. Oh, God. And, it, you know, it's like The Onion, except exactly as you were describing. It has that kind of, I don't know, bad faith energy of, like, if people fall for it, it's because they're stupid. Yeah. So it's not great. But what was good about it was, was that someone posted a, a headline from the Dunning-Kruger Times saying, Budweiser brands won't be welcome at Oktoberfest for the first time in 75 years because of, cause they're okay with trans people. Mm-hmm. And they're okay, let's be specific, they're okay making money from yes, trans people. Yes, yes, yes. They, they're willing to take the money from trans people. Yes, they're willing to take the money of trans people, and that's why they would not be allowed yes, at October. Yes. And, and so this this was a headline from the Dunning-Kruger Times, which one Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, a preeminent psychologist, greatest thinker of our generation, uh, <laughs> oh my lord, um, oh. Uh, retweeted uh, with the caption, good riddance, and... <laughs> After that, he was roundly mocked for not understanding that it was a parody. People made fun of the fact that it is called the Dunning-Kruger Times, and he is, as I've mentioned, the uh, leading psychologist of our times, and and didn't get that. Once again, even the people making fun of him, therefore, were engaging in the sort of ugly, bad faith understanding of the Dunning-Kruger effect that I don't like, but I will um, approve it in this instance because it was put toward the end of making fun of one Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. (laughs) I doubt he even knows. You know what I mean? I doubt he's read anything. I doubt he reads articles. I doubt... I This... This man. I, I, th- I think he posted an article about how you should eat nothing but meat. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, he's so, one of those so I think meat, he, I think he read meat heads. I don't think he read anything. I think he heard Joe Rogan say, you should only eat meat. And Jordan B. Peterson said, what an excellent source of nutritional information. I will only eat meat. And they're both absolutely like the most blocked men in the entire world. And they're tweeting about how great their lives are because they don't under, they don't read anything, they don't understand anything, they don't know that life doesn't have to be the way that they live it. They don't know that, and that unaware. Yeah. I bet if you asked Jordan Peterson what is the Dunning Kruger effect, he wouldn't know that it's too. I'm just making all of this up, right? I have no sources, no information. He wouldn't know that it's two psychologists. He wouldn't know that it was a study that was published. He wouldn't know that you can read studies. He wouldn't know that you can go into the library that's attached to your school. So he visits schools in order to yell at 20-year-old liberal kids, right? He doesn't know that those schools also have libraries that have books in them. And you can go into those libraries and you can read those books. Tell, That's a thing you can He could tell you do. about how the Dunning-Kruger effect has become a Jungian archetype, though. He doesn't know Jungian. <laughs> he would say Jungian. If Jordan B. Peterson saw the word Jung, he would say Dr. Jung. Uh, no, you, 
And I know that. Union's I just whole know jam. that. The, is yeah, it really? Union. The, this, is, this is why I knew who he was in the 90s. Was because <laughs> oh he God. was the only Union. He, he was... <laughs> no, that's absolutely he, not true. He that's was this not weird true. guy was... writing books about Union archetypes. And it's like, what? Who? I didn't know people were still doing this. And then I forgot about him for 20 years. In the years. 90s. In the 90s. There was a television show called... Frasier <laughs> and on on the television show there was Frasier who liked Freud and there was Dr. Niles Crane the best television character ever in the history yeah. of the world who was I, a I union do recall this. so now I'm insanely outraged because Niles is my favorite and Niles was a Jungian and you're telling me that Jungianism has been polluted <laughs> by Dr. Jordan B. Oh. It's, it's yeah it's this it's is a horrible. disappointment. This is awful. But at least we know that we can go to Oktoberfest and we can get Budweiser You, you can beer. still get Budweiser at Oktoberfest. <laughs> Jordan, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson was incorrect about that. <laughs> uh, he was incorrect, but he didn't even know he was incorrect. It's yep. wonderful. So, so th- that is what I have for a definitely legitimate pop culture reference of the day. Very legitimate. I would love to ban any mention of this man... In the future, just just uh, we can vote. We can have bylaws <laughs> that Jordan B. Peterson's name shall never oh. again darken so, our. So that's step. unfortunate because I was going to propose. I was going to propose his article, um, uh, 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 an article that I definitely had at my fingertips, and I'm not just looking up right now. Um, I was going <laughs> to propose his his article. Um, uh, Acute Alcohol Intoxication and Cognitive Functioning from the Journal of Studies on Alcohol from the year 1990. Oh, my God. I was definitely going to propose that. Maybe a season like 14 (laughs) to 19 to 37. After he has ascended to become a Jungian deep (laughs) elemental. (laughs) That's all I have. For the Dunning Kruger effect. Do you feel like you are now an expert in the Dunning Kruger effect? I feel like I'm probably third percentile where I have a maybe maybe accurate yeah. or maybe second percentile where I'm not like the worst of the worst, yeah. but maybe uh I have a little bit of competency. Yeah. I think once I've read one thousand articles <laughs> about it, then I'll be I'll move up to the second percentile. Great. I think that's healthy. I, I will also note that you are you are saying this publicly as a millennial. So we, we, we'll I know to- I, I I really <laughs> overestimated myself there. I really stretched myself, but I am saying this publicly, and you can check my Twitter later, <laughs> where I where I will say the opposite and put myself in first percentile. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So we had a plan for next week. Our plan for next week is very exciting. Our big grand finale, season one, last one, uh, Stanley Milgram. Mm, legendary uh, uh, compliance? Obedience to authority. I... There are some shocking conclusions. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm very excited. I have started doing the reading already because unlike some people whose names I won't mention, <laughs> I try to really get a good amount of reading in about the topic before I before I record a podcast about it. 
Well, join us next week for the exciting experiment of Stanley Milgram, Obedience to Authority. It involves William Shatner for some reason. Oh, bye now.